Our podcast guest today was born on the wrong side of the tracks to a teenage mum, and he credits that very same mum with shaping a lot of his own leadership capability. We find out how lonely it can be in the top job, and we explore everything from indigenous culture to technologies and how leaders stay close to their customers. Please welcome our podcast guest today, Jason Paris, CEO of Vodafone New Zealand. Jason, welcome along to the podcast. Kia ora, thanks for having me. Kia ora, fantastic for you to be here. Alrighty, bit of rapid fire so the audience gets to uh, know you a little better. Are you a breakfast or a dinner guy? Breakfast. Yeah, what was on the menu this morning? Porridge, oh. good for your guts. I, I was there with you. There you go. Yeah, kicked it off together. Um, on holiday, would you be bungee jumping or on the pool lounger? Uh, neither. I'm scared of heights and I don't like resting, so uh, I'd be um, playing some kind of sports or mucking around with the kids. Right. What's the uh, go-to sport at the moment? Cricket at the moment yeah. uh, for the boys mm-hmm. and, uh, and soccer for the girls, mainly because I can't do the splits, which is what my daughter would like me to be able to learn over the right. next uh, few weeks. Right. A few weeks. Apparently, uh, that's yeah, my okay. challenge. She sent me, in wow. a month's time, Dad, you should be able to do the splits. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> Good luck. Do you realise you're not quite as bendy as you used to be, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a little bit. I can't think I'll do the splits, to be fair. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cats or dogs? Oh, I've got two dogs and a cat. Cat was my, our first child, my, yes. my uh, wife and I, and so um, we love them both, but Arthur the cat has a special place in our heart. Okay. Well, I'm going to run with, on balance, you've gone majority dog, so we can keep going. There we go. That, that works. Your routine, are you an early riser or a night owl? Uh, I'm a night owl, actually. Yeah. Um, so, well, the kids forced me to be, be an early riser. Sure. But I do some of my best thinking, actually, quite late at night while mm-hmm. everyone else is in bed. Yep, bit of quiet time. Hmm, exactly. Uh, Flat around. Okay. Entertainment, would we find you watching a thriller or a comedy? Thriller, without a doubt. Like, yeah. I just, um, actually, when I was young, used to watch all the horror movies, read all the horror books, um, and so I love something that's a bit suspenseful. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, final uh, fast fact telco or media? Telco now. It's <laughs> a good question, nicely though. Played. Nicely played. And um, a question in from um, the audience, uh, a mutual friend, Jeremy O'Brien. Ah, Jeremy. Uh, yeah, so... Um, best <laughs> One of the greats. Hi- best high school in Invercargill? Cargill High, <laughs> a second to Verdon, which uh, he went to. Yes. Uh, yeah, Jer- Jeremy's a great guy. And actually he was, um, played uh, New Zealand schoolboys rugby at first five before, yeah. until he blew his knee up. Yes. So yes. he's a talented sports person he himself. Is indeed, mm, indeed, he's a good guy. Okay. Good self, I um, I thought that might be the answer to the uh, the question. Absolutely. So uh, grew up in Invercargill, Jason. Tell yes. me, as a as a young lad, what did you think you'd end up doing? Do you have any aspirations at that stage? Uh, school teacher. When yeah. I was at, when I was at school, so I thought I probably wanted to uh, wanted to do, um, but I ended up working at Trustbank Southland because my rugby manager, when I was playing for Southland Age Group was the uh, manager of Trustbank Southland. And so Murray uh, gave me an opportunity straight out of school to go into, into Trustbank Southland and then just the rest of the career took care of itself. But right. um, yeah, school teacher from an early, uh, from an early age. Yeah, okay. Mm. And you've had numerous corporate uh, roles, senior leadership roles. Uh, was, do you remember a moment where you were like, I wanna be the CEO of one of these organizations at, at some point? Uh, I think I've always, wanted to be in a role that makes a big impact and so I've been drawn to larger organisations that have scale mainly so that's been a sure. theme. Uh, very proud New Zealander, even more proud Southlander. So um, something that uh, is New Zealand focused has always been attractive to me. 
Um, and then I like change. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, media and telco, right, two of the industries that I've had a background in, um, you can't get two industries that uh, get more disrupted by technology, competition, Crazy. consumers uh, all at the same time. So never a dull, never a dull moment. Absolutely. Being the CEO, like I've always had this line, which is my job is to make my boss look so good that they get promoted and I get their job. It's been my focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's clearly worked out yeah. at some point in time. How's the uh, how's the chairman of Voter feeling at the moment? <laughs> Marco won't be shaking in his boots. <laughs> not just yet. No, not just yet. Actually, no, not at all. Uh, he's a much better man than I am, uh, and he has uh, a skill set across Fratell and uh, Morrison's that I don't think I'll ever have. But um, I'm pretty very happy and very privileged to be where I'm at. Uh, I don't have any. Any line of sight to his, his gig at all. Jason, obviously in a role as CEO, leadership is a big part of that. Mm. What are some of the key themes you think about around leadership? Uh, well, first you've got to think about your people, making sure that they are safe, happy, well, um, productive. We always talk in, uh, in Vodafone that you can't be great at work if you're not great at home first. And um, one of the things I learned leading coming into the organisation was uh, leaving loudly. Yes. So I've got three children with Rach and um, I coach uh, either their cricket or their soccer, depending on what season it is. I leave you know, early once a week and I leave loudly mm-hmm. just to kind of set the example of you can make choices and make sure that you, know, you don't miss out on opportunities at, um, outside yeah. of work. Yeah. So that's, um, that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is after your people is your customers. If you don't have customers, you don't have a business. So um, those are the two big focuses, regardless mm. of what industry or what role I'm in. Mm. And as a as a leader, sometimes you can feel very disconnected from the from the customer. I'm interested to understand what do you personally try to do to make sure you stay close to the customer. And then, as someone leading a large organisation, how do you try and make sure the organisation stays close to the customer? Yeah. So uh, first, personally, uh, I use social media a lot. Uh, and I'm pretty active in social media, uh, having a banter and conversations with our customers. So I try and make myself available and accessible because uh, that's the fastest way to learn. Most of the conversations on social media aren't positive, by the way. You know, no. it's always people uh, yeah. unhappy with something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the best way to understand what's happening into your organisation quite quickly. And when I'm having a conversation with my team about what we need to focus on, uh, I've actually got a fact base, which is proven because it's from customers. Mm-hmm. That's one. Do you um, feel like yeah. that fact base might be uh, biased because of that uh, nature of people tending to want to complain on social media rather than celebrate and endorse? I haven't seen that so far. Yeah. Okay. Um, in general, uh, people are pretty loyal and patient. So when something gets to me, um, or if I proactively see it in social media, is normally a series of errors or issues that have gone on for a long period of time. So, sure. and even if it is one uh, isolated incident, it's always quite good to remove the issue at the root cause of it in the first place. Yes. But by and large, um, uh, I've found that the themes I get across using social media are the right ones to focus okay. on. 
great. Yeah. And when you're getting feedback from from customers and you know decisions need to be made in the organisation, how do you try to structure decision making in, in an organisation? And uh, we're probably all familiar with the larger the organisation, typically the more layers there are between decision makers and, and customer. How, do, as a someone leading the business, how do you think about that decision making piece? Yeah. So I think uh, first of all, it's about prioritisation, and then it's about um, acting on your priorities. Uh, so at Vodafone, um, we use um, two filters. We use rapid and reinvention. Rapid um, uh, priorities are no regrets moves that just should be done quite quickly because they um, are the right things to do regardless of whatever uh, strategic scenario mm-hmm. you end up in. Mm-hmm. And then the reinvention moves are a smaller list of things but the higher risk, higher reward you take a little bit more time to evaluate them because uh, when you when you make a choice, it's harder to come back from them. Yes. So we use rapid and reinvention mm-hmm. as the two filters. Mm-hmm. Then within those, um, we then look at whether they are, uh, we've borrowed a, um, a tool or a, a format or framework from Amazon, which is one-way or two-way doors. Right. And what they talk about is that 95% of the decisions that you'll make in a business uh, two-way doors, which means if you make a call and it's wrong, there's always a path back. Mm-hmm. Only five percent of them are the one way. Right. So if it's a two-way door, what is the what is the downside of pushing the decision making as far into the organisation as close to the customer as you can possibly uh, mm-hmm. get it? Because as soon as you make a call, you'll learn from it straight away and you can pivot or you can build yes. uh, on it. Mm-hmm. Too many organisations, including us, some of yep. the time. Uh, get uh, paralysed by analysis mm-hmm. or by opinions and the best way to remove um, opinions from a decision is to get to make a call, have a hypothesis, get it in front of a customer and see how they react with it, uh, react to it and then you get the facts. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's how we how we work our yeah, prioritisation uh, and decision making. Framework. Uh, I think these kind of decisions you're faced with, they're uh, simple when they're, they're linear. How do you handle the rapid situation where uh, maybe one customer or one customer group is demanding something, but you know that if you do that, then that priority-wise is going to have an effect on someone else in the customer group? Yep. How do you think about evaluating the outcomes there? Uh, well, well, we'll look at it depending on whatever the... Uh, value creation is, whether we're looking at improving customer experience, whether we're looking at um, uh, migrating customers from old technology to new to new technology, um, uh, whether we are looking at uh, improving our commercial performance. And so we'll filter uh, or rank them based on the outcome that we're aiming for. But I would say, uh, regardless of the outcome, uh, when you make a decision that you know will be embraced enthusiastically by one customer group and not by another. Transparency is always the the key point. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, going back to, I think New Zealanders are um, very fair. Even if you make a call that they would disagree with, if you can be transparent about why you've made the decision and they can see the rationale, even if they disagree with it, they'll understand it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I find that in the organization as well. You know, you're going through really tough calls around structural change or investment reallocation, or asking someone to come out of their, um, their team and go into a new team, or go mm-hmm. out of their job and upskill and reskill into a new job. Uh, when you have a, uh, a conversation with transparency as to why the decision's being made, and it's been made from a place of integrity um, and with the right values, 
even if they don't like it, yes. they understand it. Okay. And uh, dig into that for me a little bit more. Uh, how many have you got on the team here at Voter? Three and a half thousand people, half thousand. two thousand permanent and yep. fifteen hundred contractors, which we still see sure. part of the Voter Fund. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things we regularly hear back from uh, team members and organisations is, oh, look, I wasn't across uh, what was going on, yeah. I wasn't party to the conversation, uh, and, I'm, and that's not only a problem of scale, we see that in small, medium and large large business. So how do you try to keep your team members, your, your Vodafone whanau, how do you try and keep them updated and across uh, strategic decisions you're making at a senior leadership and even board level uh, that may have impact on them and their uh, personal outcomes in the business. How do you try to find that balance of uh, you know, getting on and, and making the decisions that you've done, but also keeping the rest of the team in the loop? Yeah, so I'll, there's good news and bad news on that one. Uh, the first one is uh, we've got a pretty clear strategy in place that most people in the organisation understand and um, can communicate because actually the strategy is their strategy. All it is is a uh, an articulation of what our people have said our customers and they would value the most. Mm -hmm. So it's all good. So that's one. Uh, secondly, we have a series of regular forums that we have open, transparent conversations. So tomorrow um, we'll have our executive day uh, or morning, and then that finishes at one o'clock. And at one o'clock we have live stream every week on a Wednesday. Wow. Uh, with our entire organisation, it's recorded. If you if you're in a retail store or you're or on a service in a service role, or you can um, uh, join live, mm -hmm. uh, ask questions. Uh, any questions that come up through the week, we always answer them, and everything is on the table. We would we would normally have uh, a minimum of a third of the organisation watch it every week, Correct. so we know at least a thousand of our mm -hmm. team mm -hmm. uh, up to speed on our decisions that have been made and what is happening in the organisation. Separately to that, uh, we have um, a quarterly kitchen chats where we do through the organisation. Here's where we're at, what's happening, etc. So we've got a lot of frameworks. I think there's no shortage of opportunities for people to get across. What we don't do well yet is um, I don't think we document and publish the decisions uh, as well as we could. And so even as an executive, we're just discussing now when decisions made who within our team has the responsibility of minuting it, uh, publishing it, and then just because it's all very well making a call, but you know, it's like Chinese whispers, there'll be five or 10% variance, sure. and by the time there's a 5% variance on one of my team going into the organisation, it ends up being a 25% variance at some point in time. That's the, that's the one work on that we haven't quite cracked yet. Mm. So we've got the forums, mm. maybe not the clarity of messaging yet, Oh, it's, and it's phenomenal attendance to get a third of the organisation attending those uh, sessions every week. Yeah, uh, that, that's pretty that's good. A, that's we a, have, that's a pretty, good, uh, pretty good start. Okay. Vodafone's obviously been through some ownership changes. Yes. Uh, what are your insights as a leader of uh, some of the challenges that are presented from moving from one ownership owner to another? Yeah, there's always pros and cons uh, of an ownership change. Uh, in this instance, though, um, just I can't overstate the... Um, the significance of being able to bring Vodafone back closer to New Zealand and with owners that have allowed us to execute a 100% New Zealand centric strategy. So although we still invest over $100 million a year with Vodafone Group. So right. we all the products and services, brands, the IoT platforms, the roaming, um, access to their buying power globally for 5G technology, all those types of things still exist. But now we can execute uh, those product services and resource 
uh, and a hundred percent focus on New Zealand. Whereas previously we were working to a global framework, which means under you know my predecessor Russell, um, I can just dust off some of his business cases from two thousand and fifteen. Uh, put them to 2020 and get on with them. Right. There were some things that the organisation wanted to do over the last five, six, seven, eight, ten years that for a variety of reasons uh, they, they couldn't. Sure. Um, so that's one. The second thing, uh, ownership change, especially when you're owned by private equity, so Infratil and Brookfield uh, are, is they have a longer term view to, uh, on value creation. Right. And it doesn't mean that you know you don't have to be on your numbers every week, month, quarter, half, yeah, etc. But what it does mean is that you can invest in, invest now to get a return three, four, five years out. Whereas a lot of my competitors in telecommunications have a budget that they have to publish uh, publicly. They have dividends that they need to commit to uh, paying. Uh, for me and for us, we have the the luxury of being able to reinvest uh, our profits for even greater value creation over the medium to long term. So. That's been uh, amazing as well. And then the third thing I'd say about our owners is they bring a level of infrastructure expertise that we haven't had before. So Vodafone's kind of like two businesses in one. It's got a retail part of the business, so we serve two and a half million New Zealanders and their businesses every day. Yes. And then we've got a set of network infrastructure assets, so mobile and fixed infrastructure that probably haven't been utilised as much as they could be. Uh, and because Infratil and Brookfield own ports, airports, you know, um, energy generators, they really know how to yeah, maximise the infrastructure assets. So, mm-hmm. um, I, w- I would say those would be the, you know, they'll be the three big opportunities that ownership change has created for mm-hmm. us. And what about the challenge side of, of that? Is there? I guess I'm particularly interested in a leader's lens. Yeah. Uh, was it uh, challenging when there was maybe some uncertainty about what new ownership would look like? How did you think about that as a as a leader? Yeah. Well, a lot of uh, one of the big reasons why people came uh, to work for Vodafone was the attractiveness of the brand. Yes. But also the ability to extend your career overseas. And so we needed to continue to demonstrate that we're still part of the broader family and those career opportunities still uh, existed. That was one. Two, we introduced the owners to the organisation really quickly, again Mm -hmm. and transparently, and so they understand exactly the intention behind Mm -hmm. the organisation. And then three, uh, we put our money where our mouth was really early. So on the 1st of August, you know, over 12 months ago, on the day of the ownership change, we also announced the acceleration of 5G. And so that wasn't going to be possible under Vodafone Group, and now was. And so the organisation could see that we were bringing forward $50 million of capital investment to you know, uh, accelerate 5G for New Zealand. And they saw actually that this is going to be an opportunity for us to do some pretty special things in New Zealand that maybe wouldn't, weren't possible under previous ownership. So I would, again, you know, just say uh, transparency and then, uh, and then showing some really clear examples that are impossible to disagree with. And it has just been, it's been smooth sailing, to be honest, much better than I would have even expected it to be. Okay. And what have you found most challenging in this role as a leader? Uh, it's really lonely, actually. So are you, and when you're lonely um, and you get through into uncertain times, even when they are two-way dual decisions, um, you sometimes have a bit of a crisis of confidence on it. It's a big, it's a big call. Huge. The organisation's looking at you. What if you get it wrong? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I haven't probably uh, 
created enough of a network of other people in a similar position for me to be able to share some of those war stories as much as I could have, which is why the chair relationship is so important yes. and why um, with Marco I can be very vulnerable, I don't have to have all the answers, I can tell him what I'm worried about and I know that it's a safe environment for me to uh, to be uh, to be like that. Sure. That would be um, that would be probably the biggest uh, biggest leadership challenge is just you know uh, hard role, lonely, um, and you, and just like anyone in an organisation, you have these crises of confidence around big decisions that shit, you don't know if you're going to be doing the right doing the right thing. So how do you make sure or try to make sure your uh, direct reports yourselves don't end up in that uh, lonely spot? Uh, I share openly where I'm, how I'm feeling, and I generally find that that creates an environment where people feel more comfortable in sharing about without what they're worried about. Uh, we have reflection after every exec meeting, so the following day, first thing in the morning, we'll go, "How is everyone feeling after that? What do you think really well?" When people are coming into the into the room to share something with us, to be create the right environment for them. To again to be vulnerable to sure. not have all the answers um, do they leave motivated empowered enthusiastic did we leave motivated you know empowered um, and uh, and I get it I think we get it right 50% of the time and the other 50% of the time there's always something to something to work on learn. so yeah and yeah. learn um, mm -hmm. and I've you know I, I don't I know I'm I'm just myself all the whole time I'm what you see at home and with my friends and with my family is exactly what you'll see with uh, at, at, at work um, and so I think you know that helps too just being authentic. It's a great example uh, and yeah great, great example of leadership and um, you've probably seen some of the work that like Google's done around what makes high performing teams and psychological safety and vulnerability come out top again and again and again yeah um, so if you have the uh, person in the top seat leading that way then it's pretty easy for it to um, distill through the culture of an organization mm. That's, uh, yeah and I think you know it's always easier to look, I, I completely agree with that it's always easy to post rationalize it I just think it's being human in the main you know, it's just being a... Yeah, I, I think part of the challenge though is that there are um, preconceptions around how a leader, regardless of what that role is, should be. And a lot of people still feel like, as a leader, I should have all the answers and I better not tell anyone that I don't know the answer today because that'll make me less of a leader, you know, in their understanding. So you might be more evolved by being more naturally human. Uh, there's some others that are, have some uh, ground to make up on you. Okay, that'd be well, my there you go. That'd be my insight. Okay. Um, during that uh, PC, you talked about um, speed of decision making and empowerment. Mm. Um, how do you try and uh, distill that through the organisation so that someone who's literally on a call in a contact centre with someone who's facing a challenge, how do you try to you know, empower to that level to get them get the right outcomes? So, we have an induction program called Game On, and I uh, meet every single one of our new starters four o'clock on a Monday and I get them before they are indoctrinated into the organisation. And uh, I talk to them about a variety of things, but um, what, I, what I say to them is write down all of your, all the things you're thinking about coming into the organisation and your observations and thoughts about what the opportunities will be, because they will be 100% right. And then you're going to go into the organisation and you're going to bump into processes and policies that don't make sense to you. And you know why? Because they don't make sense. 
they would have been put in place for the right reasons two, three, four, five years ago and have no relevance to uh, how we need to compete and serve our customers today. So uh, what I talk to them about is asking for forgiveness, not permission, and that they've got my back. So even if they make the wrong call, uh, but it was made with the right intentions to always do the right thing by our customers and by our people, it can never be the wrong call because we'll just learn and move on from it. And if anyone gets in their way or they get a bit hassled with them, you know, let me know and, and, uh, and I've, got, I've, got their, I've got their back. So that's the message I, I, I try and get to every single person in the organisation. And then every forum that we have, um, we go back to um, the strategy, we go back to uh, the behaviours of the organisation and we highlight and celebrate people that have given great examples of owning an outcome or being brave enough to front up with feedback to someone or demonstrate that they're absolutely customer obsessed or have just decided to act, you know, act now. Um, Can you give us an example of one of those? um, What would I give an example? Yeah, actually just recently. So um, uh, we've just recently appointed a um, Māori development role within the organisation to embrace um, Māori culture in terms of strategic uh, long-term value creation, one. Uh, Two, because we want to create a stronger commercial relationship with iwi. And then uh, three, because we believe that um, Māori culture within our organisation should be a a really important anchor anchor for us. As part of that, uh, we've we've pushed out Takar, which is a program which immerses you into Māori culture to get you more familiar and more comfortable. And uh, three quarters of my exec put their hand up. Uh, They were told that it was a a commitment, uh, that that there were no excuses for them not to turn up uh, to commit to it. And it was going to be a series of, you know, nine engagements over nine weeks and they couldn't miss any. Um, And a couple did once straight away um, someone who's lower down in the organisation uh, went straight to them, gave them a real good bullet and said, um, yeah, it's just not good enough. You're not showing respect to me, you're not showing respect to the programme, you're not showing respect to the programme partners. And then afterwards uh, came and had a conversation with me and said, I was bloody nervous about doing that because sure. you're holding the exec to account for not turning up and meeting a commitment. I don't know, it's you know, like me thinking about would I have that conversation with Marco, fronting up with feedback? That's a big, big leap to, to make. And I was really proud of her. I thought she did a really good job. And those stories and how and how the exec yeah. reacted mm. and apologised and were like, you're absolutely right, and thanked her, uh, means that I think more and more of those conversations will come up and happen in the organisation. Absolutely. She mm. brought mana to the table. She did. Yeah, she did. Uh, so, yeah, super impressive. Outstanding. And organisations are always grappling with uh, uh, more customers looking after the ones we've, we've got. Where do you feel like the needle is at Vodafone? Are you highly focused at the moment on uh, acquisition? You know, you're in- investing you know, crazy amounts of money, $50 million in 5G. Do you need to quickly bring on a whole new customers to justify that investment? Or are you back in the let's look after what we've, what we've got and the growth will come? Where, where's the thinking for you? Yeah, we actually don't need any more customers. We've got two and a half million New Zealanders who we're privileged to serve today. Um, our best way for us to grow our business, because of course we want to grow, 
You know, we want to get more more customers buying more products. We want to get top line revenue growth. We want profit growth. All those good things um, is to sell more to our existing customers. And if we want to grow our mobile base, sell more to our broadband customers. We want to grow our broadband base, sell more to our mobile customers. But there's no way that you're going to get more business from a customer if you're not doing a brilliant job of providing the services that they trust you with today. And I would say uh, over the last five years, we haven't been doing that as well as we could. 75% of our um, customer queries get resolved first time today, but 25% get lost in a washing machine. So if any um, of your listeners are listening to this, they can think of me as their personal account manager from this point in time, jason.paris at vodafone.com. Genuinely, I want to hear from them. Um, because it's the only way I can understand what's happening in the organisation. And just to be clear, it's not a pain for me because other people fix it. I don't have the technical sure. skills to get it sorted. Uh, but I can make sure it gets it gets fixed. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, increasingly now connectivity is an essential service for people's lives. If, if your mobile stops or the connection to your business stops, your business or your life stops, or at least it feels that way. Uh, so I, we understand the importance of the, of the products that we provide. Um, and if we can get that right, then I have no doubt that our top line growth will come. It really surprises me the organisations that are addicted to acquisition, that value customers that have been with them for five minutes more than been with them for five years. It's the most expensive way to run your business to try and build a relationship with a stranger versus grow the relationship with someone who trust, trusts you or has chosen you in the first place. Mm. So, um, but I have to say it's easier said than done. I've of been course. saying that for two years. You know, it's my two-year anniversary this month, and we're only part part way there. Um, you'll still see us in market uh, on acquisition drives, versus focusing on service and, and base management, which mm-hmm. I think is ultimately our long-term key. Sure, but it's not about uh, choosing one or the other. Yes, there's an area of focus, but as you said, you still need you know um, acquisition in certain areas. So we're always going to see some of that in, in market from from Vodafone. Correct. Okay. I've got a couple of questions I like to explore, and I'm not sure they're tightly connected with leadership, but uh, they're yeah, right. areas of interest. You're so critical to connectivity. Yeah. Uh, many of us spend uh, like we, we literally just couldn't function our personal lives or our businesses without the connectivity that the likes of Vodafone provides. Yeah. But you're not very visible in that connectivity until it's not working. Yeah. How do, you, how do you think about that as an organisation? You know, often the, the piece of the network that you're providing, it's, it's pretty invisible. How do you deal with that? It drives me crazy because um, there will be a customer that goes into a Vodafone store today and spends $3,000 on a new iPhone and then is uh, annoyed about paying 20 bucks to connect to it. And this is a nationwide 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G network that also beams their connectivity to space and back for 20 bucks a month and it's still not good enough. But it's not their fault, it's our fault. Like the industry, we haven't done a great job of demonstrating the value that we provide. Uh, and yeah, I, I just, I'm not sure there's a way back. I actually mm. think my personal view is that we need to embrace the commoditization of our, of our networks uh, and that we actually need to be frictionless. We need to be more like the energy companies that you just kind of set and forget and that it always works. Uh, and actually that's the way you differentiate yourself. Because you know yourself, you know, what do you want? You want um, a great network 
but you don't really want service, but if you do need it, then you want it sorted first time, and a fair price. And if I get that, and I know I'm being looked after, and I can get coverage when I need to get coverage, I'm, I'm done and dusted. I think on top of that though, if we can get uh, our core connectivity sorted, we do have a relationship with customers um, uh, that I think can be a platform for us to play a greater role in New Zealanders' lives through curating and aggregating additional digital services. So those applications that you've talked about, we're finding increasingly, especially in business, uh, that we play an advisor role to our business partners when they've got so much choice available to them on private or public, on-premise or off-premise cloud, for example. Uh, someone who is providing connectivity that they have trusted for years to do so can be a trusted advisor in curating and aggregating that connectivity for them in a really easy, safe, secure way. So um, phase one for me coming into Vodafone and the transformation was being a brilliant digital telco. Second phase for me is being a brilliant digital services provider. And so I think um, uh, our opportunity will be to play um, more of a curator and aggregator role. What I don't think that will be is a product developer. Well, my personal view is that these products, the Spotify's, the Zeros, the Microsoft 365's of this world will most likely come from other organisations other than Telco. I think Telcos internationally have demonstrated that they struggle generally to create the products. They're much better at enabling them and, cu and curating them. So that's our mm. kind of overall mm. strategic mm. and plan. Embrace commoditization, do a yep. brilliant job of mm. providing the services we do today, mm. and then mm. use that trust to create a deeper relationship mm. with, with New Zealanders over time. Yeah. And I think that curation and advice piece is infinitely valuable. Uh, having been an organisation that's just done some uh, software purchases, you never quite know about what the software is like until you're deep inside it, mm. and you're always a bit sceptical of who's giving advice from the, from the outside. Mm. But if you have a trusted partner, has got some experience, has seen it work in other organisations knows is prepared to tell you about some of the warts Correct. Uh, that would be yeah infinitely valuable and uh, as a as a business owner I'd, I'd pay money for that mm. so there we go bit of market research exactly thank you <laughs> all good um, I'm interested in people that you think have shaped your own leadership who have you observed is there someone that stood out for you during your own career that you've gone I wouldn't mind emulating some of the aspects of that leader uh, well, my mum and my wife, like I'm, and I'm not just saying that because that's ticking two boxes. Some uh, brownie points there, Jason. You know, my mum had me, uh, she was pregnant with me at 16 and had me when she was 17, solo mum out of Invercargill, like from a very you know, poor, the south side of the tracks type of thing. Sure. Um, the selflessness that she showed, uh, which you didn't really realise when you're one or two years old or three or four years old, but the environment that she created where at no point in time did I ever feel like I couldn't do anything. And I always felt an environment which is full of love and support. And, uh, and I, I think that's a massive leadership lesson, right? You can only be, as you talked about before, psychological safety. Uh, you can only be at your best when you feel like you're in an environment. And that doesn't mean it's cost a lot of money to do that. It's actually more about psychological safety through emotion and people, someone believing in you. So I think that's a big tick. Uh, secondly, I did talk about you know how lonely a CEO role is. And my wife, um, she was a partner at Balgali for you know ten years and there for twenty years, and so I can have really good conversations with her and bounce ideas off her and get advice and counsel from her. 
uh, all the time. So I think having someone outside of work that understands enough that can give you wise counsel and you know that it's got your back uh, and will be, be prepared to tell you the stuff that you don't want to hear. I think that's uh, that's really important um, as well. Super valuable. Uh, and then I've always gravitated. Actually, all of my all of my bosses through my career have always been about change. Um, I'm definitely not the person to hire or bring into an organisation when you want status quo. I just get bored way way too easy um, easily. And um, and so uh, all of my um, bosses through my, throughout my career have created an environment where um, they've believed in me and they've backed me. And uh, at times, you know, they've grabbed me just as I was about to run off the cliff, but not too often. Um, and uh, and so that that's meant that I've been given a an environment to, to be bold and, and brave, uh, brave in. And again, I think those kind of leadership lessons, um, ones that I reflect and remember myself, and try and instill into the environment that you know me and the team try and create yeah. here for our people. Powerful. Yeah. And if you could lead any organisation in the world. Other than Vodafone, shit, that's a tough, tough question. Um, you know, like on, if I'm answering honestly, um, I actually would love to go into politics one day. But the thing I need to get my head around is you've got to sacrifice your family for your country, and that's something that I don't know if I could could do, even for a period of time. You know, like anyone who's got kids or you know sees how kids quickly kids grow up I don't know if you can write off three or six years of not being there as much as you would like to so I my hats off to the people who are in government or in opposition that are doing amazing things in health and education or infrastructure um, foreign policy um, but again I suppose that's you know going back to what I said the key drivers for me of my career have always mm. been about the scale of the impact that you can make and so you know that's why I get drawn to big corporates and if I wasn't going to be with Vodafone would I you know would I do something like that the hard thing that I'd have to get my head around is I don't think I could ever not that the politicians do do this but they have to make a choice and sacrifice some things right to, to be able to do it I think that and I just can't see you sitting still for six hours in the debating chamber yeah it's fair I don't think that's going to happen and also to be honest um, I do like to be liked and uh, I don't know <laughs> if I could ever you know even if you won your electorate knowing that 50% of the people you're walking past in the street didn't vote for you <laughs> how that would go down uh, psychologically for me yeah, but I don't. I, that's that's as far as I've gone. Like I, again, for me, regardless, it has to be an iconic New Zealand organisation that is going to be doing great things for the country or great things for the world. But I, you know, I've only been here for two years, so um, I've still got a few years left in me here yet. Yep, a few things to achieve, a few exactly. things to take off. Long, a long, long list. Oh, I like it. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the uh, podcast today. Great insights. No and uh, would really like to acknowledge you for how uh, open you've been. Uh, you've talked about you know, even just the aspect of being lonely. Uh, I imagine there's plenty of CEOs that don't have the public fortitude to come out and talk about that aspect of the, of the role. So really appreciate you being vulnerable and, and open with us. No problem. But some, someday in the future, you find you've achieved everything you want to achieve at Vodafone and you're looking for your new lifestyle. If you could instantly make that happen, who would you be for a day? It 
would have to be in a band, probably Chris Martin from Coldplay, uh, in a band, Hyde Park, 80,000 screaming fans. Um, yeah, that would be pretty special. A massive ball of energy. Yes. Yeah, just yeah. All, all sorts of things going, going off. It would be. Okay, and um, do you want to clarify for Rachel, do you want to be Chris Martin just for the artistic, not because of any relationship <laughs> status? Is that... No. no you're good? Okay. Although he is good looking and tall. He is. Which yeah. is the two things I've always aspired. And uh, I think actually if Rachel had a choice, uh, no, she'd choose me. I know she would. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Me. The perfect one. Yeah. Kia ora, Jason. Thank Kia ora. you. Thank you.